I'm Father Mitch Paquin. Welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we try to look at Scripture, and especially in this series that we're doing now, looking at Scripture in order to pray and get to know our Savior Jesus as we meditate and pray using the Scriptures. Now, we'd love to have you become part of the show by adding your questions or comments. You can do so during the live broadcast, which is on Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can do that by calling in. If you're in North America, the number is 1-800-221-9460. Outside North America, it's still country code 1. Area code 205-271-2980, and we'll put you up to the front of the line. Now, you can also send us questions by email by writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com or follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Today, we will look at our Lord Jesus reading from the scroll of Isaiah and proclaiming its fulfillment. We're at Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 21. We'll also talk a bit about the Jubilee year, what that meant, especially within Judaism and still means. And then finally, we'll take a look at the people of Nazareth's response to our Lord and how we are like them in many ways. So, let's begin by looking, because remember last week we talked about how our Lord had gone to the synagogue in um, uh, Luke chapter 4. And uh, by the way, just so if you need uh, some help with, with this, uh, I have a book called Praying the Gospels, Jesus launches his public ministry. And all this material is from that book, which you can get at EWTNRC.com, where it is item number 52687, 52687. So he, we, we see that the Lord had looked for and found the scroll of Isaiah. And he's reading from Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2. Um, and by the way, in our Lord's day, they didn't have chapter numbers. They didn't have verses. Chapters, chapter numbers were not added until the uh, 11th century. So somewhere in the mid uh, ten. Hundreds, I think by Stephen, Stephen Harding, a monk who added the chapters. And then the verses were added by Gutenberg when he printed the Bible because he wanted to make sure he did not skip any verses. So he numbered them, and that's how we got what we have. So let's take a look at that. It begins in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, 
to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, this is the verse that I want, the verses I want us to reflect on today. The key to this is in the opening line where Jesus reads the prophecy, which was written, and I'll give some reasons why I say this later on, but it was written uh, probably in 473 B.C., that's a good long time before our Lord. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Let's just start off with that. That at this point, you know, certainly the people of Nazareth in that synagogue had not witnessed the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus when he was baptized in the Jordan. And this is actually all news to them. They hadn't heard about this yet. And it is precisely the gift of the Holy Spirit that fulfills this prophecy. So the prophecy is that this is what the Lord would want, is that the Messiah has the Spirit of the Lord upon him. And the fact that Jesus cites that verse in the context of the Holy Spirit having come upon him shows that this is fulfilled. And that's why our Lord makes it clear that today this scripture is fulfilled. That's a very important thing. Now, let's see a little bit more about what this means, okay? So, the words of Isaiah are a program of action. Isaiah foretells that the person who fulfills this has a lot of action to do. And this is um, a very important thing. It is easier to see the meaning of this in light of the Jubilee. Now, if you notice in this passage, Isaiah mentions that it is the acceptable year of the Lord. And that acceptable year of the Lord is a reference to the Jubilee. Now, the Jubilees were held every 50 years in Israel. And from a passage in Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 1, where he mentions that the Jubilee is something that um, our Lord, uh, or that, that the Lord God had established. Uh, it said, let me just read that verse for you. It says, in the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, 
in the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me there. Now, this, the 25th year of our exile, Ezekiel had gone into exile in 598 BC, oh, the first exile under Nebuchadnezzar. So 25 years later is 573. And the fact that he mentions that it's the beginning of the year on the 10th day of the month. Now, think, isn't that strike you as odd? That the 10th day of the month is the beginning of the year. We don't celebrate New Year's on January 10th, do we? No, we don't. And why is this? Because in the book of Leviticus that describes the Jubilee in Leviticus 25, uh, 10 through 55, it mentions that on the Jubilee year, the beginning of the year is the Feast of Rosh Hashanah. Now, Rosh Hashanah, or the Day of Atonement, let me say, not Rosh Hashanah, um, Yom Kippur. The day Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. And that's always on the 10th of the month that begins after the autumn equinox. Okay, so the, they use a lunar calendar, and just like for Passover. That's why Easter moves around, so also does New Year's move around, depending on the first full moon after the autumn equinox. And the 10th is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. <coughs> but in a Jubilee year, that indicates that it is the first day of the year. The day begins with the Day of Atonement not on the first of the month. It's a liturgical change that, that they have to emphasize the meaning of the Day of Atonement as a day of recon, a year of reconciliation that begins with the Day of Atonement. So the year 573 BC was a jubilee. That's how we figure it out. And then the Jubilee is every 50 years. So every 73rd and 23rd year, we see that it's a Jubilee. Now, remember there's no year zero. There is the year one. Then you have 2 BC and 2 AD. But there's no year zero. There's no 1 BC or 1 AD. It's just the year one because zero was an unknown number. It, nobody had the concept of zero. That came in the, about 1400s. So, if you calculate, you know, this is, I know it's a little complicated uh, dealing with uh, calendars and stuff, but we go to John chapter 2, verse 20 which right after Jesus' baptism, right at, immediately after the um, uh, uh, wedding feast of Cana, and it's the first uh, Passover mentioned in the Gospel of John, the first of three. 
chapter 2, uh, verses 12 and following is the first one. Chapter 6 is the second. And then at the Last Supper in chapter uh, 12 and 13 is the third. That's how we have three years of our Lord's ministry. And at this first Passover, the Jewish people who are arguing with Jesus say in chapter, John chapter 2, verse 20, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and you will raise it up in three days. Because he had said, you know, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Referring to his, he was referring to his own body. They thought of this building. When was that building begun? In the year 19 BC by Herod the Great. So 46 years later is the year 27 AD. Apparently, according to the calculations in John's Gospel, the public ministry begins in 27 and his crucifixion is in 30. So that's, that's what we've got there. Now, using the same calculations, the year 27 was a jubilee year. So our Lord's public ministry begins in a jubilee. That's part of the importance of this passage from Isaiah that Jesus read at the synagogue, that it is the acceptable year of the Lord, the jubilee of 27, which was the last jubilee in Israel before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So this is the final jubilee celebrated at the temple in Jerusalem. And that gives us the context for understanding this you know, whole uh, uh, ministry. The passage in Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 2 would most likely come from the Jubilee of 473, which was the first Jubilee after the Jewish people rebuilt their temple in 516 BC. So that's the first Jubilee that, and Jesus cites this verse at the last Jubilee before the temple is destroyed and stays destroyed. So that's part of it. That's the context. And in that context of our Lord quoting a prophecy from the first jubilee after the rebuilding of the temple and the last jubilee before its complete destruction, we see that our Lord proclaims a number of jubilee themes. He's going to preach good news to the poor and released to captives because people who were prisoners and slaves were supposed to be set free. Recovery of sight. This is uh, another promise, and that's actually more connected with Isaiah 35, where, our, where the prophet Isaiah had also said, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And this is given this program that our Lord sets, we can see that he is fulfilling this by healing the blind and the deaf and the mute. 
We also have in Isaiah 42, uh, verses 16 to 18, it says, I will lead the blind by road they do not know, by paths they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I will do, and I will not forsake them. They shall be turned back and utterly put to shame, those who trust in carved images, who say to cast images, you are our gods. Listen, you that are deaf and you that are blind, look up and see. Christ will help the blind and the deaf to see and turn people uh, to God. And the, he will also set at liberty the oppressed. All of that is part of the Jubilee. And during the Jubilee, uh, slaves were set free. Land that you had sold, your family land that you had sold, was returned to your family. And this was part of it. Um, and everything was meant to be set right so that the poor would have a chance to get started again. And this was uh, a very important part of the Jubilee. And Christ is doing the ultimate Jubilee of giving us redemption from our sin. And this is a very important element. So, at that point, Jesus sat down and all the eyes were on him. And he announces, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your midst. You know, it's not something we're hoping for a long time from now. It's right then and there. Now, I've been able to go to the synagogue. There's a, there's a church built over the uh, site, the ruins of that ancient synagogue. But I've been able to go to that church. It's a Melkite Catholic church in Nazareth. And to read this passage and pray there has been really a wonderful thing. And here's something for us to consider in our own meditation on this passage. What do you think about Jesus claiming to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies? Especially think about this. A lot of Christians, including some Catholics, think that the Old Testament is not relevant. They don't pay attention to it. But our Lord did, and so did the apostles, especially in terms of seeing that he fulfills it. And this is something where it remains focused on Jesus and we need to have that sense. And then imagine you were there and you spoke to Jesus after this and if you could ask him, what did the fulfillment of prophecy mean? What does this mean for our faith in Jesus? What does it mean for the church? And I think for us to have a sense also of the fulfillment of these jubilee promises of freedom for, for prisoners and healing for the blind and the deaf. What about the gift of the Holy Spirit and the outpouring and empowering of the Holy Spirit? What, it would be worth asking our Lord, what did that mean for you and what does it mean for me? to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
and then maybe just conclude your meditation with that prayer, the soul of Christ, sanctify me, body of Christ, save me, blood of Christ, inebriate me, water from the side of Christ, wash me, within your wounds hide me, O good Jesus, hear me. Make that your prayer and meditate on that passage. Well, we're going to take a little break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes and continue on looking at this passage from Luke chapter 4, so please stay with us. We are continuing on with chapter 3 of my book, Jesus Launches His Ministry, and we're looking at meditation 4 on the passage in Luke 4 at the synagogue in Nazareth. And here we'll take a look at, uh, a, couple, uh, at a few verses. The first verse is Luke 4.22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is not this Joseph's son? Now, notice their first reaction was approval. They also have a sense of amazement and wonder by saying that his words are words of grace. And at the same time, they pose a rhetorical question. Is this not Joseph's son? Now, that's a rhetorical question. It's more of a statement. This is Joseph's son. But it's fairly typical of the Middle East to ask it as a question rather than just flat out state it. Okay? And on one hand, their rhetorical question, is this not the son of Joseph? That is somewhat of a, um, how would I put it, a statement about how familiar they are with him. And yet at the same time, their amazement at his words of grace shows that they are unfamiliar with him. And they are, they're just amazed at him at this point. So, Given that, our Lord responds to them in verses 23 to 24. He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. And you will say, Do here also in your hometown the things we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. So this is something we have to reflect on. First of all, keep in mind, at this point, we haven't heard that anybody has actually cited that proverb, you know, uh, physician, heal yourself. 
but our Lord is able to read hearts and minds. This is going to be a very important element throughout the Gospels, all four, where Jesus knows what's in somebody's mind and heart. And that's very important because as we see in Jeremiah chapter 17, only the Lord God knows the heart and mind of a person. He probes our thoughts. So this is already a typical uh, expression of his divinity, though in a somewhat hidden way. And one of the things here is that they apparently were expecting miracles from him like he had done in some of the other towns in Galilee already at that point. So that's one of the things that they have, especially Capernaum, which is a town by the Sea of Galilee. And on one hand, this becomes a tension between him and them. They want to see miracles as proof of his claims that scripture is fulfilled in their midst. But he demands faith first. And this is important because without faith, the miracles cannot be perceived. People who demand to see miracles but don't have faith will say, all right, well, maybe you did that, but that doesn't really count. I, I don't like that miracle. Do, do something bigger. I, they keep moving the goalpost because they don't have faith. And by faith, we don't just mean that you believe ideas, but also that you trust Jesus. You enter into a trusting relationship with him. And as I've seen many times in uh, the Middle East, our Lord responds with a proverb. One proverb, a physician heal yourself, is met with another proverb. A prophet is not welcome uh, in his own homeland. Um, you know, that this is typical of Middle Eastern conversation. People memorize um, pro uh, proverbs all over the place and use them in conversation. Um, and a wise person can use them appropriately. Um, and some of them are very clever. For instance, in Arabic, there's a proverb, It means a, a, a crazy man throws a rock into a well and a hundred people with intelligence don't know how to get it back out. In other words, one person causes a big problem and a hundred other people, and, and a crazy guy, and a hundred people with good sense don't know how to fix it. Explains most of politics as I understand it, but that's another issue. So, um, this is something that we have to then see. Um, this saying is not just for the people of Nazareth in Jesus' day. It applies to us, modern people, especially those of us who have grown up in a Christian culture. There's a sense in which Jesus is very familiar to us. Um, he's in our Christmas creches. We have 
images of him, Easter celebrations, all sorts of things. People use his name as expletives, committing blasphemy, all sorts of things. But this is a pseudo-familiarity with Jesus. And it keeps a lot of modern Christians in a superficial understanding of Christ. They don't really have faith any more than the people of Nazareth did. We think we know him. Yeah, I, I was raised a Christian. I, I went to catechism. But we don't know him. We know things about him. And yet, when things go badly in life, we blame God. It's your fault. Storms and tornadoes and earthquakes, things like that. Oh, those are all acts of God. So God gets the rap for all the bad stuff, but we want to take credit for the good stuff. And we don't thank him for his action in our lives or humbly profess faith in him. Uh, we don't repent of our sin, but instead we say, well, everybody else is doing it, so it's okay. That's, this is the way we modern people are like the people of Nazareth. So think about that. Think about how modern Christians are not too different from the people of Nazareth. We think we know Jesus and we don't have faith in him. We think we've got him pegged down. We understand him. But we don't express saving faith. We don't trust him. We don't have a trusting faith. And yet we would say, yeah, he's the Christ, but, you know, I don't know if I can, if I can really trust him. And in some ways, Jesus is a prophet as unwelcome in many parts of the modern world that was fashioned by Christianity. He is as unwelcome today as he was in Nazareth. Think about individuals who act like that, especially if one of those individuals is yourself. Consider your own attitudes towards Jesus. Do we have a superficial familiarity with Jesus? You know, do we let that superficiality block our faith commitment to him? That we don't trust him? Think about different ways in which on one level you say, oh yeah, I love Jesus. And I, 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 I'm, as I've heard some politicians even say, well, I'm a Matthew 25 Christian, feeding the poor and giving drink to the thirsty, clothing the naked and all that. But the rest, but the rest of it is not such a big deal. That's, that's not what we're called to do. It's that plus the rest of the gospel. And or people who just like, I just want a beautiful liturgy and then do whatever I want the rest of the week. That's no good either. You might have a liturgy in Latin, but Latin won't save you. Jesus Christ saves you. Latin or any other language, the English won't save the, the church. Jesus Christ does. And this is something all of us have to have clearly in mind. So ask our Lord Jesus for deeper faith, no matter what happens. Ask him to help us move beyond unbelief, so like people had in Nazareth, but to pray like the man who uh, said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief in Mark 9, 24. And 
to help us move beyond the unbelief that the people of Nazareth expressed in Matthew 13, verse 58, you know, where our Lord, um, you know, is rejected later on in the gospel from Nazareth. Consider those elements as reflections on your own life, more importantly than other people's lives. And ask our Lord to help you to come to that gift of faith. It's his gift to give, but it's yours to petition. Ask him. He will increase your faith. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Make that your prayer too. And conclude your meditation again with the soul of Christ, sanctify me, body of Christ, save me, blood of Christ, inebriate me, water from the side of Christ, wash me, passion of Christ, strengthen me, within your wounds, hide me. This prayer would be a great one for you to consider using as you reflect on this. All right. Well, let's, let's stop here a second and take a look at some questions we have. First of all, we have a question from Chris, who is writing this from YouTube. Father Mitch, how do our thoughts become sin? And how do we deal with scrupulosity with these thoughts, which are sin and not sin? Um, that's, that's an interesting question. As a matter of fact, I have a, another email question about uh, from Victor in California. What does it mean to be scrupulous and is it a mortal sin? All right, scrupulosity is looking at every little thing that we do and f- finding ways to feel guilty about it. And here's where it's a sin to be scrupulous. Scrupulous people tend to be very prideful. They think that they have to meet a higher standard than anybody else. And this standard applies to them in a way to nobody else. Well, that's kind of prideful. And sometimes they will find sin in things that are not sin. For instance, to say, well, I felt hungry during Lent. Um, I think I may have sinned in uh, desiring to be gluttonous. No, no, feeling hungry is what your body does. And just like um, lots of other things, you know, being afraid of poverty, being, you know, interested in, you know, in sex, being willing to eat uh, uh, nice things, you know, like cake and things. That's not, you know, that's where scrupulosity can get in and it can be a prideful thing. So that's, that's what answering Victor's question. But then to go back to Chris, uh, who's asking about the same kind of thing. I think you know, when he says, how do our thoughts become sin? Um, there are, thoughts become sin when we make a choice to hold an idea that we know contradicts what God has said. 
So for instance, a, a good example would be, uh, and this is something that applies to a lot of scrupulous people, that God said it, everything he created was good. Every time he created something, he said it's good. And some people are tempted to think, you know, I sin because of the things in nature. And therefore, um, nature is bad. Or, uh, as I, I think, you know, some Calvinists have gone, to think that we are totally depraved. Every thought we have is evil. Even when we have a good thought, it's still evil. That's not true. And if you hold some doctrine knowing that it is contrary to what God has revealed, then you can sin in thought. For instance, to think, well, look, you know, I work for a crime syndicate, one of the drug cartels, say, and I just got to kill people as part of my job. So it's not a sin for me, it's just work. No, it's a sin. You can't kill innocent people. You don't have authority to do that uh, from God or from the state. And it, you are not exempt from that. To say, well, you know, I, I, I think I love this girl, so if we are together and sleep together, that's okay. No, not committing adultery or fornication applies to everybody. And to, to give yourself permission to say it's okay when it's not okay would be a sin of thought. You contradict the commandments, thou shalt not kill, or thou shalt not commit adultery, and so on. So that's what be sin of thought. And then in terms of scrupulosity, you have to make sure that it really is something sinful, not just a thought that could become sinful if you follow it through, but a thought that is flat out wrong, like saying it's okay for me to kill. No, it's not. And this, uh, that would be flat wrong. But having thought, oh, I sometimes wish, you know, there's some people I just am so mad at, I'd, I'd want to kill them. That's a temptation, not a decision. And you don't become scrupulous over temptations. It's very important. So these are things to think through. And I urge you to take a look at the catechism in the section on the Ten Commandments to see what is sinful, what is not. Inform your conscience. It's not your feelings. It's your conscience being formed in a rational, reasonable way. All right. We've gone a little over, but it's important questions. Let's take a break. We'll come back with our first caller, so please stay with us. First of all, I want to make sure that you join me tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for EWTN Live. 
we will be talking with author Rod Bennett, who has a great new book about the Twelve Apostles, and it is to try to help us understand what it was like to be chosen by our Lord to be one of the Twelve Apostles. He discusses a question he had as a younger man about how necessary were the apostles to Jesus' mission? Did he really need them? And how, how did they understand their calling? And how did it change them afterwards, especially spiritually and interiorly? And also, don't forget, on Thursday, Holy Thursday, we'll be having specials, but I uh, urge you to go to your local parishes and celebrate Holy Thursday and Good Friday uh, and the Easter Vigil, if you can make it, and, of course, Easter Sunday. This is our week, so we want to celebrate this. All right, now we have a caller. Angelina, where are you calling from? South Jersey, Father. South Jersey, wonderful. And yeah. what is your question? Okay, I'm going to try to make this as short as I can. Well, it goes from 1 to 38, but I'm just going to give you the beginning. Ezekiel chapter 1. He says, he saw the heavens open and he saw the Son of Man. I understand that. He said it was on the fourth month, the fifth day, and he saw these four animals, he called them, that had four heads, four wings, legs standing straight, and when they moved upward, they had wheels under their feet. Now, it goes on, if you read, it goes on to say that they had like something like a spaceman suit, and, and when they moved, um, they covered Jesus with the wings or something. Now, I think they're angels, but an angel wouldn't look like a lion. He claims they had lion space. Mm -hmm. and, and nobody could answer this for me, and I figured maybe you could help me. All what right. did he mean by that? And, and, right. um, and, and that's what I want you to help me with. It goes on with a lot of, if you, you'll look at it. You look at yeah, it. Yeah, sure. Say, yeah, sure. Sure, yeah, I've got the passage here, and I've actually translated it a number of times over the years. A couple things. It's a passage of a description of the cherubim. It's not just a regular angel. These are the cherubim. And the cherubim are known in other societies outside Israel. They made various images of the cherubim. And uh, I'll give you an example. If uh, you're in South Jersey, I don't know if there's anything over there, but if you're ever in Chicago, and any of you, if you get a chance to go to Chicago, uh, there is a museum there known as the Oriental Institute. It's down at, um, uh, uh, in the south side of Chicago, near University of Chicago. And they have an Assyrian, Assyrian uh, cherub. And it has wings like an eagle and a lion's body and the head of a lion. Now, this is based on a vision. And people uh, very much have 
these visions that they try to put into words. And I urge you to think back on what uh, the children at Fatima saw and what uh, St. Faustina saw in her visions of Jesus Christ and what Bernadette Subiru, St. Bernadette Subiru saw at Lourdes, that they would describe the way Our Lady looked or Our Lord looked but every time people tried to make a painting or an image of it, it was, no, it's not quite right. There was always something elusive. And that is one of the reasons that he said, I saw the likeness of the four living creatures and their appearance. This was as close as he could get. And this is typical of people who have such visions. It's as close as they can get, but it is a likeness. Um, and uh, even when he talks about the Son of Man, it's the likeness of the image of the Son of Man. It's, he, he's very cautious. So you're dealing with a vision that is hard to put into words. That's one of the issues. But he's also dealing with cherubim as understood by other Middle Easterners who had these lion and bull characters and eagle characters. That, that this was all part of the image that they had of the cherubim. Now, this is different order than the angels or archangels. They don't look like that. And it's different than the seraphim. When Isaiah sees the seraphim, they look like uh, uh, flames. That's what seraph means, to be burning. And these cherubim are carrying the Lord. They're even higher order of angels than the seraphim. Uh, the, among the nine uh, choirs of angels, they're the highest because they're closest to the Lord and His throne. So, that, keep in mind that he's trying to convey a vision, but he can't be real precise, okay? So that's very, very important to keep in mind. And it's a mysterious thing about having these different kinds of power in them and different qualities all wrapped up in one as they carry the Lord. So that's what's going on there. All right, we have another caller, Devin. Hello, Father. Where are you calling from? I am calling from uh, South Central Texas, the hill country of Texas. Where in uh, South Central Texas, Dagnabbit? Uh, New Braunfels. Uh, oh, I love New Braunfels. Oh, phenomenal. We ha you know, we have a perpetual adoration chapel here, and I try to frequent it as much as possible, and I get lots of inspiration here. But, hey, I have a question for you. Um, sure. So I am a recent revert, thanks be to God, back from... Russian Orthodoxy, uh, uh -huh. this past December. And um, I am kind of rereading things that I studied beforehand. Sure. Um, and one of the things I'm reading is Vatican II. And um, I really love St. Thomas Aquinas. And I have come Good. to a roadblock, probably for humility's sake, um, on Lumen Gentium 16. You might know the chapter I'm talking about uh, where it talks about how uh, we worship... Uh, 
possibly the same God. I'm unsure how to interpret that. Uh, we worship the same God as the Muslims. Or so, so I, you're much more learned than me. Um, what is the interpretation of that um, sure. with regards to St. Thomas? First of all, the, the, the Quran and Muslim tradition teach that they worship the God of Adam and Eve, the God of Abraham, Moses, David, and Jesus. So that's, that is their own statement of faith, that it's, and that they worship the one God, and the, who's the creator, and who will judge everybody. Now, does that sound like the God we worship? Yes, it, it does yeah. sound like the God, sure. Yeah. Right. Now, this, with that passage in Vatican II, uh, as well as in uh, the document on ecumenism, what it's seeking to do is show this is what we have in common, and on that commonality, we can build a dialogue. And in fact, over the years, we have done just that in many situations. So the Vatican and many of the Muslim countries have been the only voices speaking against abortion. We share that together with them and with our faith. Now, are there points where their understanding of God is different from ours. Absolutely. They're very different from us. And there, for instance, in Surah 5, ch chapter 5 of the Quran, it says, say not three. Now, sometimes the translations say it incorrectly. They'll say, say not trinity. That's not the word for trinity that they use there. In the, in the Quran, it's say not three. And they think we believe in three gods. Some of that is due to misunderstanding, especially when they think that we believe that God, Jesus, and his mother Mary are God. We don't believe that, and that there's three separate gods. We believe in one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So there's a miscommunication but unless we start with what we share in common, we can't go to explain the, the misunderstanding. So we, that's what Vatican II is doing, trying to start off with what we hold in common so that we can then go to that which is the points of dispute. Um, I think it's in uh, Surah 4, uh, verse 157, where it says that Jesus was not crucified. Uh, it says that they thought they crucified him, but they didn't. We would have strong disagreement, but Vatican II isn't trying to start off with the points of disagreement. It's trying to start off with the points of agreement. And then when it comes to St. Thomas, he is dealing especially with Muslim philosophers, Averroes and Avicenna. And he is engaged in a debate with them. So in his Contra Gentiles, he's arguing against various positions, such as in Islam, there is 
uh, mitigation of free will. They don't have the same sense of free will. God's will is absolute. And whatever God wills, that's what happens. And they don't distinguish between what God permits to happen, even if it's against his will, versus his perfect will. Thomas helped to clarify that. But it's only when you start off with uh, that commonality that we can do this. And by the way, Devin, um, you remind me of something. I heard today in the news that people are being mean to Russians. They are in Boston. I hear that they're trying to keep Russian runners from being part of the Boston Marathon. Shame on them. What Mr. Putin does and what his army does is not the same thing as what these runners do. That's an evil decision. It's this cancel culture that's gone nuts. And you don't cancel Russian people because the president of Russia does evil. So keep that clearly in mind. We pray for the Russian people uh, so that, you know, who are innocent of a lot of this, um, as well as try to have a sense of the importance of praying for the Ukrainian people. So let us pray for the people of Ukraine. Oh, blessed mother, we gaze upon you in this icon of Our Lady of Fatima. And we see you with hands lifted in prayer for the people of Rus. Be an unassailable wall of protection for the people of Ukraine. And with your motherly care for us sinners, fill us with your love. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And again, we can bring you these gifts, uh, uh, the programs, with your support. God bless. Thank you.